Your world is you. I am my world. Fact. Be gone. You're listening to Burdens, the podcast. I'm your host, Drew Kaiser. Every month I tell stories about crooked priests, crestfallen kings, damaged soldiers, witches, giants, and always prophets. Think thousands of years ago somewhere. The way it could have been, not the way it was. A world of dreams, prophecies, and wonders. A world like ours, filled with pain, tragedy, doubt, but also faith and redemption. A world where you just might encounter yourself. This is not your world, not mine. It's somewhere in between, in between. This is episode 9, The Breach, part 1. I'm going to try something new with this episode. So far, every episode has been a standalone story. I don't think I have one any longer than, say, 45 minutes. But the story I want to tell next is a long one. It would take far longer than than an hour to tell it, so I'm going to break it up into four parts, covering two chapters per episode. This will give me an opportunity to spend some more time with the characters and to tell the kind of story that I haven't had the time to tell yet. Now, because you're used to getting a whole story every month, I'm going to release the four parts of this story every two weeks instead of once a month. Also, hang on at the end for important information about the developments going on with the podcast and ways that you can help spread the word. The Breach Mind your words. Tread carefully, little one. See the stars? What are they? Do you know? Lights in the sky, holes awled into God's shroud, letting his glory poke through. Nay, my child, I will tell you, they are angels. Their light reaches all the way from heaven to our humble earth, observing all our ways. They burn brighter at night as a reminder that not even darkness hides our creaturely deeds. Always mind your ways. The watchers see, and their liminal voices have the ear of God. Chapter 1 Eli was starving. It had been twenty-four days since he and the others fled the city through the breach in the wall. They had found shelter in a rocky outcropping eight or nine miles from the city, and had been surviving on whatever food they were able to scavenge, hares, lizards, small birds, and a donkey someone had sacrificed for the group. Unclean, yes, but how can a man follow the law when he is dead? Eli didn't know how many had tried to follow him out of the city. Swords and spears had cut their ranks in half, at least, on their way through the wall, 
and now there were maybe a hundred survivors left, all of them looking to him for guidance. The hunger gnawing at his belly was bad enough, but the guilt he felt over abandoning the city was seven times worse. At night, sounds of the enemy's celebrations echoed throughout the camp. He could hear them looting homes, and sometimes he heard the awful screams of women whose sons and husbands had been killed in the invasion. He thought about the startled gasps of the man who had been running beside him when a soldier's spear impaled him and he winced. Even this far out, the air was thick with smoke from the buildings they had set on fire. Sleep evaded him most nights, and then when he managed to drift off, nightmares plagued his head with visions of unspeakable atrocities committed against the men, women, and children he had left behind. Why are we capable of tormenting ourselves with our worst fears, even in our sleep? As a young man, Eli thought the world was something a man could control. His parents made sure he had received the finest education possible. He had been married and dreamed of a house full of children. The king himself had more than once called for his administrative talents. But somewhere along the way, everything fell apart. Unlike other men who gradually came to realize their own futility through daily frustrations, Eli's sense of competence crumbled all at once when his wife fell ill with the sickness that would eventually take her life. He had been angry with God for taking her, but now he was beginning to think her untimely death had been an act of mercy. He had to stop second-guessing himself. They had been right to run away. By the second new moon of the siege, Eli knew they had lost the city and that it was only a matter of time before the enemy breached the wall. He wished more had followed his lead, better to escape than to sit around waiting for execution. Even if the wall had not been breached, they would have died from starvation within days. He had not realized how quickly the enemy's swords could sweep so many of them away during their escape, but still about a hundred of them were left a hundred who may not have survived another night in the captured city. The way he saw it, they had only two options. They could not stay where they were. There was too little water and no food. They were too exposed. It would not be long before marauding nomads descended upon them like vultures on a cadaverous feast. No, they couldn't stay put. The only two choices were, one, head north for Gibeah in hopes of finding asylum, unless the enemy had already destroyed them too, or, two, risk re-entering the city on the off chance the enemy had finished its murdering and looting and abandoned it for the next conquest. There was no way of knowing which choice, if either, would end in safety, but they couldn't stay where they were. A woman's voice startled him from his reverie. Eli, my little boy is starving. He hasn't eaten in three days. It was Maica, whose husband had been among the fallen during their escape. I know, said Eli sympathetically. Everyone is starving, Maica. What do you want me to do about it? Someone has to do something. We can't just die out here. There are worse places to die. Do you want to go back to the city? Did you hear the screams? Do you know what soldiers do to young women like you? If worse comes to worse, and you die from starvation or heat exhaustion, you should thank me for it. 
Maika looked down at the ground, searching for her words. Eli watched the top of her head for a moment, then spoke. I have a plan. It has been very quiet out there for the last several days. Have you noticed? Yes, much quieter than at first. Well, I've been thinking. This wasn't a takeover so much as a show of power. They don't want to live in Jerusalem. They just want to show us who's boss. You know, break some things, tear a hole in the wall, loot the temple, and kill a few hundred people so that we'll keep paying tribute, right? I suppose, said Maika. She didn't seem too sure. What would it hurt if we got a closer look just to see if they went back home? I could leave in the morning before sunrise and be back before noon. If the hostels are still there, we run to Gibeah, but if they're gone, maybe we can return home and rebuild our lives. Maika hung her head. Look, said Eli, putting his hand on her shoulder. I know you lost someone. He was a good man. I know how you feel. It will never be the same. But think about your son. She nodded. Get some rest. Tomorrow, I'll put eyeballs on the city, and after I'm able to find out what's going on over there, we'll break camp and go in one direction or the other. On the outside, Eli must have looked confident, in control. But inside, his guts were twisting like a nest full of snakes. Most of the men thought he'd lost his mind when he told them his plan. He tended to agree with them, but the way he saw it, they were half dead from starvation anyway. If they got killed trying to re-enter the city, they were merely sparing themselves from withering away in the wilderness. That night, Eli lay on his back and watched the stars. An eccentric uncle of his, his mother's brother, used to tell stories about the heavens. He liked to say the stars were angels watching the earth from their celestial vantage point. He told Eli they shine more brightly at night because that's when people think no one's looking. Any fool who thinks he can hide in the darkness will change his mind if he looks up at the night sky and realizes the stars are God's angels, he said. Even as a child, Eli doubted his uncle's astronomical speculations, but now he was especially skeptical. It was hard not to believe that he and the others had been forgotten in the wilderness. He had never felt so alone. How had he become the head of a band of skeletal refugees in this parched wilderness? Fire flew across the sky above him, illuminating the sleeping faces of those who were lying around him. A shooting star. It covered his entire line of sight from horizon to horizon. How many times a night does a star blaze across the night sky unnoticed, he wondered, as he looked at the sleeping bodies around him, oblivious to the heavenly machinations above them. They slept during the day, too, a different kind of sleep, exhausting, not restorative, a kind of oblivion the mind uses to shield itself from the horrors of reality. Most people know only a sliver of what happens around them, yet God expects them to use wisdom and decide the best course for themselves and their families. No wonder life so often ends in tragedy. We grope blindly in the darkness. And the stars, he heard his uncle interject. Yes, the stars, thought Eli. Such cold light for a sign. Chapter 2 
The next morning, Eli rose early and headed toward the city, following the smoke rising from the structures the invading army had torched. Getting eyes on the walls without being detected would be tricky. He had to be careful. If there were hostiles on the wall, he would be able to see them in time to beat a hasty retreat without being spotted. But if the wall was clear, he would have to approach the city for a closer look. The motions of his plan were simple, but Eli struggled to compose himself against the abject terror he felt with every step he took in the direction of the wall. With tremendous effort, he willed himself forward, trying not to think about what would happen if he got caught. He followed the black pillar of smoke, its pungent smell filling his head. Although it danced before him in the wind like a solitary tower, he knew it grew from dozens of homes, shops, and government buildings on fire, maybe more. And somewhere in that dark flume, the temple's remains escaped into the atmosphere as if God were calling it home. After three hours, he came within sight of the wall. All was quiet as far as he could see. Nothing moved. The city sat on a high hill, and the wind howled in the higher elevation. Tumbleweeds rolled across the plain between him and the wall. He saw the breach that had opened their city, a gate of destruction belching smoke like the furnaces of hell. It was in the shape of a wedge, wider at the top and narrow toward the bottom. The opening was smaller than Eli remembered, and he marveled that he and the other survivors in his party had been able to escape. Bodies littered the ground around the opening where the hostiles had struck them down. They had been lying there for three weeks, exposed to the elements and wild animals. Eli cursed the hostiles for their cruelty. Could they not have at least tossed the bodies into a mass grave? Maica's husband was there, and many others who had tried to follow Eli out of the city. Eli made a square of vision by overlapping his hands and peered through it trying to see farther. Nothing but silent walls, the bodies of the dead, and billowing smoke. Maybe the hostiles had returned home, leading away the survivors as captives. He scratched his disheveled beard and swallowed hard. He couldn't be sure from this far away. There was no way around it. He would have to enter the breach to get a closer look. The breach's mouth gaped open, either mocking or beckoning him. Eli wasn't sure. He would have to cover 200 yards of open ground before he reached it. If the hostiles were still in there, they would dispatch him with an arrow before he got very far. But what else could he do? Everyone back at the camp looked to him for guidance. He had to find out who, if anyone, was behind that wall. Eli picked out some scrub 50 yards ahead and ran for it, staying low. He dove for cover when he reached it, scraping his knees on the loose chert of the desert floor. His heart was pounding out of its chest. He peered over the leaves of the brush he was hiding behind. No shouts or arrows flying through the air. Eli was beginning to accept that the city might really be abandoned. While he stooped in his hiding place catching his breath, he surveyed his surroundings and his eye fell upon the decomposing body of one of his fallen comrades. It lay supine staring at the sky from black empty sockets. Eli remembered how he contemplated the sky the night before and wondered if the man had died thinking about the silent angels. 
another hundred yards or so, and he would be standing in the breach. He took a deep breath, trying to slow his pounding heart, and focused on the smoking hole in the wall. Then, having cleared his mind of every thought except for reaching the wall, he darted out from the scrub cover and sprinted toward the breach. He came to a full stop at the wall. Standing in front of the breach, he could see nothing but black smoke. It stung his eyes and filled his lungs, and he doubled over, coughing uncontrollably. The only way to discover what or who lay within those walls was by running blindly through the breach's black curtain. The wall was approximately nine feet wide here. He could span it in four or five steps. Eli commanded his right foot to take the first step, but it refused, frozen by fear. Finally, more from a desire for breathable air than curiosity about what lay inside the wall, the foot obeyed its master's command and stepped into the breach. One step. Four more. The second step landed on something soft. A body, probably. Eli felt sick, and he could barely breathe because of the breach's acrid atmosphere. He fought the urge to turn back and took another step. The air suddenly sweetened, and a fierce gust nearly blew him off his feet. Debris circulated in the air above him. Dust bit his eyes, and he had to lean forward to stay on his feet. Why did the wind pick up? Did the breach somehow funnel the air currents through the wall? No turning back now. Two more steps. The next step seemed to take him into a whole new place, as if the breach had compressed layers of experience into the small space it inhabited. The wind stopped as quickly as it began. Eli heard voices and other sounds he couldn't place, like trumpets on feast days and low growls or stones rolling. A celebration? The noise of the city's survivors rejoicing over the enemy's departure? Eli had carefully contained his hope since the siege began, but now he cautiously allowed it to poke its head out from the fragile veil of his heart and look around. He listened intently while rubbing his eyes and blinking, trying to see through the black smoke. Bracing himself for whatever came next, he took one final step out from the smoking plume to get his first look at the city since the invasion. The smoke cleared immediately. No. Cleared wasn't the word for it. Rather, it vanished completely, as if it had never existed. The morning light shined brightly in his eyes, and Eli's senses suddenly became overwhelmed with new sights and sounds. Something sped toward him on his left, and he stumbled wildly backward just in time to avoid being struck by it. He coughed in the noxious fumes it left in its wake and watched it roll down the street and disappear around the corner. A bright, blue, horseless chariot. He rolled over onto all fours to stand, expecting to see the breach he had just emerged from. But instead of the breach's smoking mouth, he saw a row of glass doors. He gaped at his own shocked image in the door directly in front of him. Above it a sign dangled bearing two red roses and letters woven with thorn-laden stems that read, Flowers. Where did the wall go? And the breach? Get out of the sidewalk, dopehead, a voice growled maliciously above him. Eli realized he had fallen backward onto a paved walkway, 
upsetting the flow of pedestrians, many of whom had to walk around or step over him as they passed. He rose to his feet, dusting himself off, his heart pounding from his near miss with the chariot and reeling with confusion over the absence of the breach and the strange world he had stepped into. The crowd shoving their way around him could not have been Israelites or hostiles. They were dressed unlike any people he had ever seen before. A few of the women wore tunics and robes, but the rest covered their legs with sleeves like the arms of a tunic, only tighter. Some of the women walked alone through the streets with their long brown legs completely exposed. All of them painted their faces, and some had dyed their fingernails and toenails. Eli diverted his eyes. These women could make the harlots blush back home. Strange, heathen tattoos, decorated arms, legs, and necks. How could this be Jerusalem? Where was he? Was he dreaming? He must have been dreaming. Everything was all wrong. He entered the door of the flower shop where the breach had been, praying that it opened to the familiar surroundings of the land outside the wall of his home in Jerusalem. A bell rang behind him as he stepped into a bright flower-spangled room. White light buzzed from long cylinders lining the ceiling, and flowers decorated the tables and shelves all over the room. Wreaths hung on the walls. He saw only one person in the crowded space, a young, attractive woman shifting uncomfortably on a stool behind a counter. What had happened to Eli's beloved city? Where was he? And will he ever be able to find his way back? And who was that young woman behind the counter of the flower shop, and will she be any help to him at all? To find out the answers to those questions and more, stay tuned for the next episode of Burdens. And while you're waiting on The Breach Part 2 to drop, you can visit my website at drewkaiser.com or follow me on Instagram and Facebook to keep up to date on all the things related to burdens. Spread the word. Tell your friends about it. We want as many people as possible to be able to listen in and join us in these stories. If you haven't done so already, leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The music you hear on this podcast is The Wasteland by Ross Bugden. The voice you hear at the top of the podcast is Wallace Stevens reading his poem, Bantams in Pine Woods. As always, thank you for your feedback, your kind words, and most of all, just for listening. We'll see you next time.